All right. John chapter 2. Lord willing, we're going to finish this chapter today. And as we read this book, and as we have been, uh, and I've mentioned this already, but one of the main things that John is doing is he is revealing to us the identity of Jesus. He's trying to show us who Jesus is. And we've talked about the end of the book that he says he's shown us these signs that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah. And if we were able to, although we're never able to really do this, but if we were able to step back and kind of put us ourselves in a place where we knew nothing about Jesus, and we were literally just opening up this book and being exposed to this person named Jesus, John is kind of unraveling or unfolding to us the fullness of who Jesus is. And you can picture the peeling of an onion. And as you peel back an onion, there's all these layers and layers and layers. And as John is showing us these miracles or signs that Jesus does, one miracle is not enough. One sign is not enough to really expose to us the fullness of who Jesus is. So he's, he's building this argument, if you will. He's building this case and showing us more and more and more who this Jesus is. Last week we saw that Jesus had authority over matter, over elements. He is at a wedding and John told us that his first sign that he did was that he turned water into wine. And, and when we see that miracle, we think back a little bit to creation where God was able to simply speak and things came from nothing. Things existed that didn't before exist. And this man Jesus, who of course is God, has the ability to take something and transform it into something else. Today in our text, we're going to see that Jesus also has authority over the temple itself and that he is passionate about, about man not impeding other men from right worship. The other thing that we saw and we will continue to see is that John shows us how Jesus is fulfilling many of the structures and systems of Old Testament religion and worship. We saw an illusion last week. I argued that it was significant that Jesus took the very jars that were intended for ceremonial washing so the Jews would do certain types of hand washing uh, so that they would be clean, not just clean from, from stuff, but ceremonial clean, spiritually clean. But they had taken it much further than God had ever intended. And we see elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus condemns them for this, this extreme level they had taken their hand washing. And he says, you are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. They were condemning other men for not doing something that God had never commanded. And he takes these very jars that are intended for hand washing, and he uses them to perform this miracle, where he turns this great abundance of water into wine. And we saw that, that an abundance of wine is a picture in the prophetic books of this messianic age that was to come, that Jesus is beginning. And I believe that he was showing that this old system, these old things are passing away, and Jesus is now doing something new. And today we have a similar allusion, this time to the pinnacle of Old Testament religion. 
the symbol not just of Israel's national identity, but the thing that stood at the center of all religious activity. And that is, of course, the temple itself. So John chapter 2, if you want to follow along, I'm going to start in verse 13 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold the pigeons Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So this is the Passover festival. There were three feasts out of the year where the Jews were supposed to make this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And many Jews did not live in Jerusalem. So they would travel many miles on foot to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So there at this time of the year would have been many thousands of people on the scene in Jerusalem. This was a national event. And we get this picture here of Jesus that I think is a little bit different than He is often depicted. Now I know any picture of Jesus, a literal drawing or a painting, uh, is just... It's just a painting. But we often see Jesus depicted as kind of this weak, meek, soft guy. I mean, he's got beautiful flowing locks and he's this really gentle guy. And the Bible definitely says that he is meek and mild. But we see here a a different kind of guy. I mean, he is full of righteous indignation. He is righteously upset about what is taking place in the temple. He he makes a whip out of cords and he starts leading these animals out of the temple. He's flipping over tables, dumping people's money out. I mean, you can imagine the scene that is taking place. People are going to be upset. I mean, and Jesus is passionate right now. He is righteously upset. And the first thing that I think that we see is Jesus' zeal for true worship. His zeal for true worship. You see this passage quoted at the end of what I read, and that was Psalm 69. And it said that the disciples saw this, and they remembered that psalm. And that was a psalm of David crying out as he often would, as he he's this picture of this righteous sufferer. David is a man after God, even though he sins, and he mentions his sin in that psalm, he is still one that is wanting to be faithful to God. And it says that his that his passion for the temple, his passion for the Lord's house, consumes him. And the disciples think of that verse and they relate it here to Jesus, that he is is zealous for right worship. And I think that, that this zealousness is twofold. I think the first part is he is zealous that the Lord's temple would not be disgraced. When we think about what's taking place here, these merchants are offering a service to the people. Because you could imagine traveling 20, 50, 100 miles on foot, however long that would take. Uh, I've read that in this day, a person, 
a day's journey would be somewhere 15 to 20 miles. Um, I've never walked 20 miles myself. I don't know when the last time you might have, but walking was common then, but still it's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and you can imagine going to this feast, and if you had to bring also the animals that you were going to offer as a sacrifice, you have to feed them, you have to care for them along the way. So it would be an extra burden. So these merchants are offering a service to the people. They're selling them the animals right there that they could offer as a sacrifice to the Lord. And these animals would have already been approved without blemish and what have you. Uh, There's also a tax that any man over the age of 20 had to pay this temple tax. And it had to be given in the currency of the temple. So, hey, here we go. There's guys here and they're offering to exchange whatever denarius, whatever money you have for the temple currency. But of course, there's a fee, right? There's just a small fee on top of that. So while these people are there offering a service, they're also profiting off of the people. They're making money off of the people. You know, I think of the guy uh, who sees the 4th of July parade kind of beginning to take place. And he sees this mass of people and it's 107 degrees out and the heat is sweltering. And he goes in his house and he fills his ice chest with ice and water bottles and he walks down the street and he sells water bottles for five bucks a piece. Now he's offering a service, right? He's also kind of taking advantage of the situation, the great need that's happening. And I think that's what we see here. The temple was, of course, the central place for worship. This is where worship took place. This is where God's presence was said to reside on the earth. So Jesus is rightfully upset. I mean, you could imagine if I was up here and I was talking about how we need to get, we need some young families in the church. We need more children in here. And if you came in one day, and as you came in through the door, you kind of heard some weird noises and maybe smelled something a little off, uh, and you saw that I had put a great petting zoo right there in the fellowship hall. Right? I mean, hey, we need to get families in here. I I got a couple donkeys out there, even a full-size cow. Uh, Whoever's doing cleanup this week will have a little extra work, but don't worry about that. Now, petting zoos are not wrong. Children love animals. We'd probably get some extra people in here. But we would all understand that it's probably not the right place to have a petting zoo inside of the church. So instead of at the temple hearing solemn prayers and praises to God, you hear the sound of of donkeys and sheep and, and oxen and what have you. So Jesus is upset that the Lord's temple is being disgraced. But I think he's also zealous that man would not hinder anyone else in coming to God. You could imagine uh, if you were a Jew and you wanted to be faithful to the Lord, and you're going to make this great trip to Jerusalem, and you were a poor person, didn't have much money, it would probably be difficult to do this journey. You have to leave your livelihood at home. Uh, You have to have enough funds to care for your family along the way, to feed your children and for the way home. And it could be a burden to make this pilgrimage. And then you get to the temple, and it's supposed to be this great celebration, looking back to what God did when He delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt. And then you're burdened. You're paying conversion rates. You're paying a tax upon top of another tax. You're potentially overpaying for an animal that you're supposed to offer as a sacrifice. And Jesus is filled with righteous indignation that people would hinder others from worshiping Him or from worshiping God. That they would put these stumbling blocks in the way. And this is not the first time that we see this 
in the New Testament. Uh, you remember that time where Jesus is speaking and the disciples are around Him and there's children kind of running around. There's children in the area. And the disciples are kind of annoyed by it, right? And, and they, they finally are like, get these kids out of here. You know, what, what are these kids doing here? Jesus is speaking. This is, this is serious time. Get the kids out of here. And Jesus gets angry at them. And he says, do not hinder the little ones from coming to me. Bring the children to me. Do not get in the way. If they want to come to me, bring them to me. And i got to say, I think this is an excellent example for us. Because so often in the church, we, the adults, have said, hey, this is serious time. This is adult time. We need to get the kids out of here. Uh, they're a distraction. They just get in the way. They're not going to understand things anyway. They're not going to get it. So, so let's get them out of here. And when they're older, maybe when they're 12 or 13, when they can get it, we'll bring them back in. But the stats say otherwise. The stats say we send them out of the worship service and we put VeggieTales on for them and we feed them and we let them draw cartoons and we entertain them and we give them pizza. And by the time we bring them back in here, they don't even know what church is. They haven't been exposed to real worship and they don't really want any of it. But what a blessing it is to have the children with God's people worshiping together. Now, are young ones going to get everything that's said from the pulpit? No. That's, that's a reality. We get that. But we don't speak baby talk to our children until they're able to speak as adults and then start talking to them like adults. We speak to them. We say words to them. We say sentences. Sure, we simplify things. But we speak to them as we speak to others and they just pick it up as they go. I want you to think about this. Think about a, a person that's born, a baby's born. From the time that they're born until they're 18, just counting Sunday morning services, they'll see their parents worship the God that they love just under a thousand times. They'll see their parents weep over their sin. They'll see them rejoice in the works of God. They'll see them pray for their loved ones. They'll see them sing songs with a bunch of people to God. And I don't believe that you can put a value on parents seeing the faith of their, or on children seeing the faith of their parents come alive. Is it always easy to have children in the worship service? It's not. <laughs> not all of them are behaved excellent, excellently, right? But I think as a church, we need to be gracious to the moms and dads that desire their kids to be in here and to worship along with their parents. And Jesus is zealous that man would not hinder others from coming to God. He, he, he rebukes his disciples. He he corrects them when, when the kids want to come to him and they, and they say, ah, let's take the kids out of here. We also see this in Paul. And Paul says that we should never be a stumbling block or a hindrance to anyone in their faith with God. And his example is eating meat. In, in Corinthians, the people in the marketplace that were not Christian would be selling meat. And oftentimes the butcher in the back of his shop, he would kill this animal and he would say, this is offered to the God of Baal. And then he put it in his storefront. And Paul tells the church there, he says, who cares? This God is fake. It doesn't matter. But if your brother is offended by that, 
If your brother is upset that you would eat that food, then Paul says, I'll be a vegetarian. I'll never eat meat again if it's going to stumble my brother or my sister from coming to the Lord. If they're going to be offended by that, I'm not going to bind their conscience. I'm not going to upset them. So he says, I never want to be a stumbling block for another. And Jesus is also zealous that no man would hinder another from coming to the Lord. No man would get in the way of one's worship. And these profiteers were doing just that. They were making it more difficult than it needed to be for people to come and to worship God. So Jesus is upset. They're disgracing the temple. They're hindering people in coming to God. And the next thing we see is His authority over the temple. I mean, it seems clear that Jesus felt that He had the right to turn that place upside down. I mean, He's flipping tables. He's, he's dumping money out. He's got a whip. He's cracking this whip. He's getting the animals out of there. I don't think any regular man would have the audacity to do such a thing, but Jesus walks in as if He owns the place. Because He kind of does, right? I mean, <laughs> he's, he's Jesus. But we see Him taking ownership over the temple. And He says, this is my Father's house. Don't turn my Father's house into a, into a market. And for us to hear, this is my Father's house, we don't really... I don't think we, we blink at that because we're instructed to pray. My, our Father in heaven. We, we know God as our Father. But when we read the Old Testament, Moses never spoke like that. Prophets never spoke like that. So it was a strong thing for Jesus to say, this is my Father's house. And the leaders then, of course, they question His authority to do that. And we'll jump back into the text in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. I think it's revealing that the leaders in the temple, they didn't say what you've just done is wrong. They didn't, they didn't try to defend their practices, but basically what they seem to question is His authority to be the one to challenge them. And I think that reveals that they knew what they were doing was wrong. Now some people like to say that the, the, the officials in the temple were in cahoots with all these marketers and they were making money off of the people. I don't think that's too far of a stretch, but the text doesn't say that. But what it says at least is that these, these people were allowing this to take place. Uh, the men that, that, that were the authorities in the temple, obviously uh, the only way someone was going to sell animals inside the temple gates is if they allowed them. So they're at least complacent, letting them come into the temple, letting them have this marketplace. And I think their response reveals that they know what they're doing is wrong. And they ask him, who are you to stop this? Who, who are you to come in and say this? Show us a sign to prove that you have the right to come in here and challenge us. And what does he say? He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And Jesus was just a master with words. He loved just... just twisting their minds. and <laughs> When you read the Gospels, you see He's always kind of turning things around in them. And what He does is He points to the ultimate sign. 
Jesus was not, was not one to do tricks for those with hard hearts. As we'll see, He knows the hearts of men. He's not here to do parlor tricks on cue whenever someone tells Him, hey, do a sign. Perform a miracle for us. And what He does is He points to the ultimate sign. He points to His resurrection. And He basically says, kill me and I'll raise myself from the dead. Proving then that He has the authority to cleanse the temple and to cleanse that place. Because obviously the ultimate sign of Jesus' authority and identity is His resurrection. Right? That is God's vindication of everything that He said. But I think He's also talking about the fact that He has come to replace the temple. Jesus has come to replace the temple. He calls Himself a temple. Now he's, mess, he's playing on words there, but He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. He also says in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than the temple is here. Now the Jews prided themselves that they were the ones that knew God. They were the ones that had uh, the truth of the living God and they knew that all other gods were false. They also prided themselves, not just that they knew Him, but that His temple was in the center of their nation. That He dwelt in the midst of them. And for Jesus to say something greater than the temple is here is a bold statement. And I want to think for a moment about the temple and see if we can draw any connections to our Lord. So number one, the temple was the divinely instituted place of worship. Right In the Old Testament, the temple was the place God had set up to worship Him. That was where it took place, at the temple. Now, to rightly worship God, one must go not to the temple, but one must go to Jesus. As Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the temple was the divinely instituted place of worship. Now Jesus is the one that we must go to to worship. Uh, the temple was the divinely instituted access to God. There was no other way to have access to God but through the sacrificial system that took place at the temple. Now, the only way one is to access God is through Jesus Christ. Not through Hare Krishna, not through Allah, not through Buddha, not through meditation, but only through Jesus Christ. And he says in John 14, I am the way. Number three, the temple was where God dwelt with man on the earth. The temple was said to be God's dwelling place with His people on the earth. The mercy seat inside of the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, uh, was His footstool. But we just read a couple weeks ago in John chapter 1 that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled among us. So prior to Jesus, the temple was where God's presence resided on the earth, but in Jesus... God's presence resides on earth in a person. Of course, that person is Jesus. The temple was where sacrifices were offered to God. That was the place where sacrifices were to be offered. Now, we see a smattering in the Old Testament of, of sacrifices at special occasions in different places. But by and large, day in, day out, the temple was where that took place. And now, post-cross, Jesus is the perfect, final, and full sacrifice to God. No longer are any sacrifices needed. He was that once and for all sacrifice. And lastly, 
The temple was where sin was atoned for. For God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, their sin had to be atoned for. And the temple and the sacrifices that took place there were that place and that method. But now, post-cross, sin is solely and completely atoned for in Jesus Christ. He is the sole method of atonement, and He also accomplishes a perfect atonement. Back then, we saw sacrifices every single day at the temple, but now Jesus has accomplished atonement once and for all for His people. So when Jesus comes, He makes the temple and this whole system obsolete. It was simply a shadow of Him who is the real substance of what God was going to do. So Jesus replaces the place the temple held and all the things the temple was used for are now accomplished in Him. And it's worth noting, as He says, destroy this temple. Yes, He was speaking of Himself. He was pointing to His death and resurrection. But I think it's worth noting that one generation later, only 40 years later, the temple would be destroyed. Rome would come in. Uh, Jerusalem was in rebellion against Rome, who was there was kind of oppressing them. And Rome had finally had enough. And they come in and they devastate Jerusalem. And they destroy the temple. And it's never been built up since then. One generation later, this whole system of temple worship and sacrifices is gone. And it seems to me that Jesus comes, He takes the place of the temple... God gives some time for the church to grow. He gives some time for the Jews uh, to see this transition happening from Old Testament worship to now the new realities in Jesus. And then He allows the temple to be devastated, never to be built up again. And I submit because that is because it's no longer necessary. Jesus has made it obsolete. And briefly, you may be wondering or asking in your mind, why is he always drawing all these connections from the Old Testament to the New? Let's talk about now. Let's, why are we going backwards? Let's talk about uh, Jesus. But what I hope we can see more and more is that the Bible is one book. Now you may say, duh, I know that the Bible is one book. But the Bible is one single book with one central figure that it points to with one divine author. Many men penned the ink on the pages way back when, but they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this book ultimately has a single author with a single message pointing us to a single person. From Genesis to Revelation, this book, I believe, is meant to reveal to humanity the sufferings and glory of the Son of God sent to save sinners and bring us back to God to restore what was broken at the fall. I think too often we, we look at these old stories of Israel and feel like, they don't have much of a place for the church. You know, those are for the Jews. That was their history. It's connected to us because Jesus was a Jew, but they're not really relevant now because this is the church age. But it is in those old stories, in those people, in those institutions that point us towards the work of the Son of God. Uh, and my hope is that we would more and more read the entire Bible as Christian Scripture. From the beginning to Revelation, uh, this is a Christian text, not half Jew, half Christian. And last point is this, number four. Jesus desires true worshipers. Uh, we saw His zeal for right worship, but now we see His desire for true 
worshipers. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now this section, maybe it's just me, was a bit confusing. Because what did it just say? It said that many believed in his name because of the signs that he did, but he did not entrust himself to them. Now we just read in John chapter 1, not that long ago, that whoever believed in the name of Jesus was given the right to become a child of God and was born again. So is this text saying here that these people believed in Jesus and He did not save them? Uh, And I think that's a dangerous question that needs to be answered carefully. You've heard me say this. I'm going to continue to say this. um, That we always want to interpret the Bible with the Bible. The best way to understand the Bible is by reading the rest of the Bible. right? Is It's all interconnected. So when there's a passage that is kind of confusing, that is less clear, uh, it's always best to go to the clearer passage to help shed light on a, on a text that may seem confusing. Uh, so I think we would all agree that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Romans 10.13 says again in Acts 2, shall come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John chapter 6 Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the testimony of Scripture is clear. Faith in Jesus equals salvation in Jesus. So I think the key to this text is the response of Jesus. And there's a parallel we don't see here in the original language. It basically says, they believed in Him, but he did not believe in them. They believed in him, but he did not believe in them. Jesus saw something in them that proved that their faith was not real. We don't really know what that is. Maybe they had wrong motives. It's commonly understood that many Jews at that time were looking forward to a Messiah, but they expected this conquering king. They expected this political ruler that was going to crush Rome and restore Israel to her former glory. Maybe they saw Jesus as this king, they weren't trusting in him as a savior to rescue them from their sin, but they saw him as a political king that was going to dominate Rome. Uh, maybe they had selfish motives. They saw this guy that could do miracles, uh, and they wanted to get the blessings that he could probably give them, but they had no intention of actually following him or being his disciple. Whatever the answer is, it's clear that Jesus understood something about them. And then even though they had a surface kind of belief in the name of Jesus, it wasn't real. And I think the application for us here is is a warning, really, that there's some some sort of belief in Jesus that that doesn't save. Now, I want to say that very carefully. Uh, But it appears that these people came to Jesus on their own terms. They came to Jesus seeking something that He wasn't even offering. They were going to kind of demand from Jesus what it was that they wanted. They weren't coming to Him as a Savior uh, to rescue them from their sin. They were coming to Him for something else. And whatever they wanted from Him, it was not what He was offering. So we read 
that he did not entrust himself to them. And today, uh, there are many, I believe, that come to Jesus seeking things that he never promised to give. And I think, sadly, you know, we see uh, today that many come to Jesus and they just want him really as an accessory for their, for their life. Just a little add-on, right? I don't, I don't really want anything that he says to, to affect how I live. I just kind of want this little addition of Jesus. I have no intention of being his disciple. Uh, maybe they have no intention of, of doing what he says and picking up their cross and following him. Uh, but he's just something to make their already nice life a little bit better. But we read clearly that Jesus came to save sinners. Right? Jesus came to seek and save those that are lost, those that see their need to be forgiven. And I assure you that if you come to Jesus in that manner, if you come to Jesus recognizing your need for salvation, then He will entrust Himself to you, and you will find Him to be the perfect Savior. So what have we learned? Uh, we learned that our Lord is zealous for true worship. He does not want his father's house to be defiled by nonsense. He does not want people to be encumbered by obstacles when they come to worship God. And I think that tells us that it matters how we come to the Lord. It matters how we worship God. God cares. Now, he has told us how he is to be worshipped. He's not left it up to our own fancies. Uh, we've seen that Jesus has authority over the temple and the sign that was shown to prove that was ultimately His death and resurrection. We've seen that He has come to replace the temple. And in times past, God had this single place where worship was to take place, where sacrifices were to be offered, where people had to travel there three times a year. But aren't you glad now that you live after the cross? That all of that formality has been done away with? And that you can simply come to Jesus Christ by faith as He has accomplished salvation for you. And lastly, we've seen that Jesus is zealous for true worshipers. Don't buy the American lie that Jesus gives you your best life now. Because if this life is the best that it gets, then heaven is going to be woefully lacking. Jesus does transform our lives this side of heaven, but our ultimate hope is in heaven. Our ultimate hope is in glory, where sin will be, do will be done away with, we will be free from pain and suffering and where we will see our Savior face to face. Amen? Let me pray.